Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A colorful Hollywood crisis. The stars were absolutely afraid of this new medium. Teenage killers on the loose. No one's sure when the couple is going to strike again. And a bizarre creature of otherworldly origins. This was one of the strangest things the police had ever seen. Within the walls of great institutions lie secrets waiting to be revealed. These are the mysteries at the museum. Belmont, New Hampshire. The many mills that once inhabited this picturesque town were powered by the Tioga River. Today, the preservation of the region's history is driven by the Belmont Public Library. It's home to over 5,000 books, an antique grandfather clock, and the 1920s coat of a local band leader. But there is one artifact here that is so minuscule that it is easy to overlook. This artifact is a black circular disc about a centimeter around gold etching is showing a rider on a galloping horse and it says, beyond the call of duty. As journalist Jeff Greenfeld can attest, this tiny badge was awarded for an oversized act of heroism. Behind the story is a guy who may have protected America from nothing less than a national tragedy. How is this pin connected to a devious plot that threatened the country's most famous family? 1960, Belmont, New Hampshire. 34-year-old postmaster Thomas Murphy is sorting through the mail of this quiet New England town when he comes across something unusual. 
a postcard addressed directly to him. But when he reads it, it seems to make no sense at all. It contained rambling, unconnected, sometimes incoherent thoughts. It is signed by 73-year-old Richard Pavlik, a notoriously cantankerous man who is all too familiar to the people of Belmont. He was always complaining about something, often about how the American flag was wrongly displayed, you know, at schools and at the city hall. He was very concerned that this was, it was being disrespected. He is also known for his dislike of a rising political star running for president, John F. Kennedy. His father, Joseph Kennedy, one of the richest men in America, uh, had spent millions of dollars to help his son get elected. And Pavlik was convinced that Joe Kennedy was buying him the presidency because of Joe Kennedy's money. Over the course of several weeks, Murphy receives more postcards from Pavlik, each more bizarre than the last. A bemused Murphy simply puts them aside until he receives one that grabs his attention. It said, soon you'll be hearing from me in a big way. Curious about the meaning of the cryptic message, Murphy re-examines each of Pavlik's postcards and notices a pattern. He looked at the postmarks and the postcards and realized that they were coming from cities where Kennedy had been campaigning. Essentially, Murphy put two and two together. He concludes that Pavlik is stalking JFK and his young family and worries that his intention is murder. Murphy alerts authorities, and soon the FBI and Secret Service begin to hunt for the suspected assassin. Interviews with Belmont residents reveal an explosive lead. Before leaving town in his 1950 Buick, Pavlik purchased 10 sticks of dynamite from a local hardware store. This was enough dynamite to level a small mountain, so this was no stunt. He was preparing to blow up John Kennedy. On November 8, 1960, John F. Kennedy is elected president. But with his term in office set to begin in just over two months, investigators seem no closer to tracking down Pavlik. Then the FBI catches a break. They discover that Pavlik's mail is being forwarded to the post office in Palm Beach, Florida. Palm Beach, Florida was the winter home of John Kennedy. The Palm Beach County Police are advised to be on the lookout for a 1950 Buick. And on December 15th, they fortuitously spot their target. The local authorities find Richard Pavlik staking out the church where Kennedy worships. They approach cautiously and quickly apprehend him. When authorities search his vehicle, they uncover just how close he was to carrying out his devious plan. They find in his car the explosives that he's bought. It's enough to blow the entire block to smithereens. Pavlik is arrested, and a national tragedy is averted. But the police are stumped. Pavlik had been in Palm Beach for days and knew exactly where to find Kennedy. Why didn't he act on his sinister plot? In custody, Pavlik admits he came closer than anyone could have imagined. Four days earlier, Richard Pavlik is parked outside Kennedy's home in Palm Beach, Florida, in his car, holding a switch that is connected to sticks of dynamite. Pavlik states that he saw the president-elect exit his home. But before he had a chance to detonate the bomb, fate intervened. 
Jacqueline Kennedy came to the door to see Kennedy off to church. And Pavlik, out of some weird notion of chivalry, I guess, says, I don't want to do this in front of Kennedy's wife and child. So he doesn't trigger the dynamite. Pavlik is charged with attempted murder. But he is deemed unfit to stand trial and is sent to a psychiatric hospital where he spends six years undergoing treatment. Thomas Murphy, the postmaster of tiny Belmont, New Hampshire, is hailed as a hero for uncovering the plot. And in April 1961, the U.S. Postal Department awards him this Beyond the Call of Duty pin, which is now a part of the collection at the Belmont Public Library. Today, this badge serves as a reminder of an intuitive post officer whose heroism will forever be remembered. When the first film was made here in 1910, Hollywood, California was little more than a village surrounded by fruit orchards and farmland. Today, it's considered home to the multi-billion dollar movie industry. And celebrating the history of the silver screen is the Hollywood Museum. Here, Marilyn Monroe's jewelry, a dress worn by Lana Turner, and a helmet from Cecil B. DeMille's 1935 movie, The Crusades, encapsulate the glamour and grandeur of the film world. But among these nostalgic artifacts sits an item that could be mistaken for a medieval torture device. It's made of metal. There are flat edges, there's sharp edges, there's round edges. It's rather scary to look at. According to museum president Danelle Dadigan, this bizarre contraption was designed by a pioneer in the world of beauty. We all became more glamorized thanks to his innovations. What is this device? And how did its creator save the face of Hollywood? Los Angeles, 1931. With 80 million people attending movies every week, actresses like Betty Davis and Jean Harlow are under constant pressure to look their best. And there's only one man they trust to give them that big screen flawless finish. Makeup artist Max Factor. Max Factor, with his genius, was able to transform these women into the glamorous ladies that we saw. Factor's trademark grease paint formula has become the standard of the industry. He employs strong colors, like green eyeshadow and deep brown lipstick. When captured on black and white film, these colors give the illusion of bold, natural features. All of a sudden, small eyes became large. A wide nose was narrowed, and you had high cheekbones. But Factor knows that a key component to beauty has more to do with math than makeup. Symmetry. The more symmetrical facial features were, the more attractive it appeared to the human eye. And in 1932, Factor unveils a new device that promises to bring symmetry to uneven faces. He calls it the Beauty Calibrator, and the only one still in existence is now on display at the Hollywood Museum. Max Factor would place this on the star, and he would measure the distance between their eyebrows, how large were their eyes, the size and shape of their nostrils, the lips. With these measurements, Factor believes he can calculate the amount and type of makeup that will make a face appear more symmetrical. 
But before the beauty calibrator achieves widespread use, a seismic industry shift forces Factor to abandon it. The studios made the announcement, Technicolor is the newest and greatest thing. And it's coming. Now, with films shot in color, Factor's thick, strong-hued grease paint formula will leave actresses looking garish. Now everything was going to appear more natural, more realistic. Greats like Carol Lombard, Joan Crawford, Betty Davis, all of them vowed they would never appear in a color film. They were absolutely afraid of this new medium. It seems there's only one person who can help. Max Factor had his work cut out for him. With the assistance of his son, Frank, Max adapts his grease paint formula for Technicolor. But the results are disastrous. Factor's old formula can't withstand the bright lights required for filming in color and appears oily and thick. It would kind of run. It was too heavy, it cracked under the heat, and it did not appear to be realistic. So what will it take for the makeup king of Hollywood to meet the demands of the new world of color? Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. It's 1932. When Hollywood makes the switch from black and white film to color, it sends stars into a panic. The makeup they've relied upon to conceal their blemishes now looks unnatural and garish. The task of modernizing film cosmetics falls to makeup pioneer Max Factor. So what will it take for Factor to save face? Max Factor throws out his old formula and starts from scratch. Ingredients had to be replaced. 
Amounts had to be changed. Qualities of mixing had to be reworked. After devoting countless hours in the lab, Factor and his son discover a secret weapon that was right under their noses. It's one of the oldest ingredients in modern-day cosmetics. Simply, it's talcum powder. By blending talcum powder with water, oil, and pigments, Max Factor creates dry, solid makeup that, when applied, doesn't crack or run. The result is a light and flawless finish. And inspired by its cake-like consistency, he chooses a memorable name. Max Factor called it Pancake Makeup. Factor's new product makes its debut in a film set in the world of modeling and high fashion, a musical entitled Vogues of 1938. And just as Factor hoped, his product is a hit. The stars, the crew, everyone loved this new invention of Max Factor's pancake makeup. Soon, demand for his signature product extends far beyond the silver screen. Women all across the world were clamoring for this new pancake makeup. Over time, it becomes the largest selling single cosmetic item in history. He truly changed what entertainment was about when you looked at it and the accessibility of good looks to women at large. And this beauty calibrator at the Hollywood Museum is a testament to one man's commitment to perfection, both on and off the screen. Nestled just eight miles from Atlanta is the city of Decatur, Georgia. This small, tight-knit community is also home to a state agency that delves into the dark side, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. Here, visitors can explore a small crime museum that features a hazmat suit used to investigate clandestine meth labs, an illegal moonshine still, and fingerprinting tools. But there's one item on display that appears to have nothing to do with the world of fighting crime. It's white. It has a head and a body. Its mouth is slightly opened, and it's kind of curled around. According to Director of Public Affairs, Sherry Lang, when this creature was discovered by the authorities, it caused a phenomenal reaction in the community. This was one of the strangest things the police had ever seen. A lot of people were convinced that this was something otherworldly. What is this strange being, and where did it come from? Georgia, 1953. In the early hours of July 8th, Officer Shirley Brown is patrolling an isolated stretch of road on the outskirts of Atlanta when something in the distance catches his attention. When Officer Brown came around the curve, he saw three men standing in the road. When Brown approaches them, he's struck by their odd behavior. When he saw the three men, they seemed to be stunned. As Brown gets closer, he discovers why. Lying next to their feet is an odd-looking beast unlike anything he's seen before. The creature they were standing over was green in color. It was about two feet long. It did not have any hair. The men, Edward Waters, Tom Wilson, and Arnold Payne, explain that they'd been driving home from a bar when they saw something in the middle of the road. They said they saw three creatures and that two of them ran away. 
The men were so stunned that they accidentally hit the third one, which now appears to be dead. What they tell Officer Brown next is nothing short of shocking. They said that the two creatures that were running away actually ran towards a red object that was shaped like a saucer. Once the two creatures reached the spaceship-looking object, it took off into the sky. Then they point to more evidence of their unearthly sighting. The men then showed Officer Brown an area on the road that was scorched, and they said that's where the saucer-like object had taken off from. After relaying their story, the men head home with the creature, and Officer Brown heads back to the Cobb County Police Headquarters to file a report. Soon, word of this close encounter begins to spread. The Cobb County Police Department and the Atlanta Police Department started getting a lot of media calls regarding this. In the morning, the men had the strange green being examined by a veterinarian. He was baffled. The veterinarian had never seen anything like this before. He actually called the creature something out of this world. The police were determined to get to the bottom of this. The police call in an anatomy expert to examine the creature, now on display at the Georgia Bureau of Investigation Museum. And what she discovers is alarming. The creature was determined to be a monkey. Investigators are stunned. With the truth finally uncovered, they turn to the three young men who discovered the monkey for answers. They stuck to their story for several hours. But under intense questioning, the men eventually cave. The whole event was a hoax. Their account of the spaceship was completely fiction. Edward Waters tells police that they purchased the monkey at a pet shop. They killed the monkey, chemically removed its hair, cut its tail off, and painted it green. To create evidence of the alleged spaceship launch, they burnt a mark into the road with a blowtorch. But what drove the men to kill and mutilate a monkey? One of the men bet the other two men that he could make the front page of the Atlanta newspapers. And the bet was for $50. Following the confession, authorities deliberate over the perpetrator's punishment. The only charge that they could find was an obstruction of the roadway, which only brought a $40 fine. And as if to make up for the penalty, the three men are subjected to ridicule by the local community for going to such great lengths to carry out a hoax. The three men became laughingstocks in Atlanta, and one actually left the city and vowed never to return. And this monkey, which resides at the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, serves as a reminder of a cruel prank that almost fooled an entire nation. In the early days of homesteading, Lincoln, Nebraska was nothing more than a collection of salt flats and marshes. Today, it's the state's capital. And charting the trajectory of this frontier past is the Nebraska History Museum. On display is a coat made of buffalo hide, a 19th century music box, and an antique model farm thresher. But according to historian Brian Sarnacki, there is one artifact here that tells a contemporary tale of living on the edge. The artifact is brown, it's black, it's made out of metal and wood. It's lightweight and easy to hold. Just decades ago, this item triggered a terrifying series of events that gripped the nation. This was one of America's greatest nightmares come to life. Who wielded this gun? And how is it connected to one of the most horrific crime sprees in recorded history? 
January 1958, Lincoln, Nebraska. 14-year-old Carol Ann Fugate has a problem. Her family disapproves of her boyfriend, a suave and rebellious 19-year-old named Charles Starkweather. Starkweather was a frustrated youth. He did not do well in school, and he was quick to get into fights. The rebellious Starkweather's frequent visits draw the ire of Fugate's parents, but she's convinced it's true love. One day, neighbors notice a sign in the window of the Fugate house. It reads, Everybody has the flu. Word of the illness quickly spreads. And soon, Fugate's grandmother stops by to check on the family. A seemingly healthy Carol Ann answers the door, but refuses to let her in and nervously demands that she leave. Her grandmother was very suspicious of her behavior and notified the police immediately after. When an officer arrives, he finds no sign of the teenage girl or her boyfriend. And when he inspects the home, he discovers a terrible sight. Carol Ann's mother and stepfather have been stabbed and shot to death. The police immediately label the young lovers as prime suspects. And it's not long before there's a report of another gruesome crime just outside of Lincoln. The next day, authorities found a murdered 72-year-old at his farm. Police soon discover that the victim is a family friend of Charles Starkweather. On the same plot of land, police also find the bodies of a young man and woman, stabbed and shot to death. Authorities are baffled by this seemingly random killing spree. But as the bloody trail grew longer, authorities still could not capture the teen couple. No one's sure when or even if the couple is going to strike again. It takes only one day. In an affluent section of Lincoln, a wealthy industrialist, his wife, and a maid are found dead. And the man's prized 56 Packard has also been stolen. But in this most recent episode, it seems the young suspects have made a critical mistake. The deceased industrialist, he was personal friends with the governor of Nebraska, Victor Anderson. The grieving governor calls in the state's National Guard, and the general public goes into a full-blown panic. Vigilante gangs filled the streets of Lincoln. People feared leaving their homes. News of the couple's terrible exploits top headlines across the country. And Americans are desperate to know what's motivating this terrible crime spree. Authorities issue a multi-state bulletin for the outlaw duo and the stolen 56 Packard. 24 hours later, a Wyoming patrolman spots a stranded car on the side of the road. As the officer approaches, he sees a couple struggling to start the vehicle. In the back seat is a harrowing sight. The body of a man with a bullet wound in the head. And just yards away is the stolen 56 Packard. Realizing he stumbled upon the outlaw teens, the officer radios for backup. But Starkweather flees on foot, leaving Fugate behind. Within seconds, Starkweather ran back to his original vehicle. He then drove away quickly. Fugate surrenders. As Starkweather speeds down the highway, the police are in pursuit. And soon, they take aim at the fugitive. During the shootout, Starkweather was cut from shattered glass and he believed he had been shot in the head. Starkweather then stops the car, and he surrendered. 
Starkweather is arrested, bringing his week-long reign of terror to a screeching halt. In court, prosecutors establish that Starkweather got into a heated argument with Fugate's family that ended in murder. They believe Carol Ann followed the lead of her lover and participated in the subsequent murders, perpetrated with this Winchester 62A rifle, the very same firearm now exhibited at the Nebraska History Museum. But the question remains, with the family out of the way, why did they continue to kill? Prosecutors believe the disaffected Starkweather was modeling himself on an up-and-coming cinema icon. Around the same time, James Dean became a big Hollywood movie star with movies such as Rebel Without a Cause and East of Eden. Starkweather idolized Dean's outlaw persona and adopted his mannerisms and dress. And it seems Starkweather viewed the murders as his own pathway to stardom. In the end, both teens are found guilty of murder. Charles Starkweather is given the death penalty by electric chair, while Carol Ann Fugate is sentenced to life in prison. And this rifle, housed at the Nebraska History Museum, is a grim reminder of the two teenagers and the terrible string of murders they committed, which continue to fascinate the nation. Laid out according to the design of French architect Pierre L'Enfant, Washington, D.C. is known for its wide, sweeping boulevards and neoclassical buildings, earning it the nickname America's Paris. But one institution here pays homage to a man from the opposite side of the English Channel, the Folger Shakespeare Library. The Folger Shakespeare Library is a national landmark building. It opened in 1932. We have the largest collection of Shakespeare-related material in the world. The library features a rare portrait believed to be of the bard himself, one of the first folios of Shakespeare's collected works, and a working theater designed in the Elizabethan style. But according to curator Heather Wolfe, one item here relates to a remarkable discovery made long after Shakespeare's death. This artifact is a printed work. It's about six inches wide. It has a green goatskin binding and a gold decorative border and it's full of handwritten annotations. What secrets are contained within this book? And how did it send the literary world reeling? London, 1794. A collector of English antiquities, Samuel Ireland has a reputation as an exacting taskmaster. But there is one subject that intrigues him like no other, the Bard of Avon. His true passion was William Shakespeare, and he wanted more than anything in the world to own something that was written by Shakespeare. One day, Ireland's 19-year-old son, William Henry, presents his father with an unusual gift, a mortgage deed bearing the signature of none other than William Shakespeare. William Henry tells his father he found the item in an old trunk given to him by a wealthy friend. Since few physical effects of Shakespeare's life are known to exist, Ireland is thrilled by the discovery. Samuel Ireland was very excited, and he immediately asked William Henry to go back to see if there were any more Shakespeare manuscripts sitting in the old chest. Eager to please, William Henry obliges. Over the next few months, William Henry presented a number of Shakespeare manuscripts to his father, including letters, receipts, and a series of books from Shakespeare's personal library. 
One of the books is a treatise on King Henry IV, containing notes that appear to be written in Shakespeare's own hand, now part of the collection of the Folger Library. Ireland knows he's in possession of a literary goldmine. Samuel could not believe his fortune. People had been longing to know something about Shakespeare's personal life and his creative process, and all of a sudden they were flooded with manuscripts that told the world more about this mysterious man. Leading scholars of the day flocked to examine the collection. And one item in particular stirs a frenzy of excitement. A never-before-seen manuscript for a play called Vortigern and Rowena. As soon as the discovery of the manuscript of Vortigern was announced, one of the main playhouses in London paid Samuel Ireland a large sum to be able to produce the play using some of the leading actors of the day. The highly anticipated Vortigern and Rowena debuts in front of a sold-out crowd at London's Drury Lane Theatre on April 2nd, 1796. But it doesn't take long before the audience sees this is no masterpiece. They were a little uncomfortable with the choppy language and inconsistent dialogue. By the third act, the crowds were starting to get restless. As the play draws to a close, even the actors seem disenchanted with the material. One of the lead actors decided to ham up one of the lines in the last act. It was, and when this solemn mockery is over, and then he repeated the line. The audience, of course, realized that he was talking about the play and broke out in laughter. Vortigern and Rowena is canceled after just one performance. London is stunned. In the wake of the disastrous performance, Shakespeare scholar Edmund Malone publishes a shocking claim. Vortigern and Rowena is a fake. His doubts even extend to the larger collection of documents in which the play was discovered. Malone produced a 400-page scathing critique questioning the authenticity of the Shakespeare manuscripts. He cites a litany of grammatical errors and historical inaccuracies. Yet the man who brought the material to the public's attention vigorously disputes Malone's findings. Samuel Ireland was very angry when this critique came out, and he did everything he could to refute it. To silence the skeptics, the humiliated collector sternly demands that his son supply proof that the papers are real. But William Henry unloads a secret far more damaging than the cruelest review. William Henry made a stunning confession that he was the creator of all of these Shakespeare manuscripts. In a letter to his father, William Henry reveals he used ink and old parchment to forge the documents. And then to make the ink turn the perfect shade of dark brown, he held the parchment up to an open flame to allow it to darken. Yet incredibly, the admission fails to convince the stubborn Samuel Ireland. He did not think his son was smart enough to create these sorts of things, and so he continued to believe that they were Shakespeare manuscripts. But his outrage rings hollow when William Henry goes public, writing a book explaining the drive behind the epic deception. In these confessions, he explained that his main motive was to try and please his father. He really wanted his father to love and respect him, and he thought the only way that this could happen was if he produced something that his father desired. 
Nearly 400 years after the Bard's death, the dream of uncovering lost Shakespeare work still fuels scholarly efforts around the world. And this volume at the Folger Shakespeare Library stands as a reminder of a once celebrated discovery that was revealed to be much ado about nothing. Reno, Nevada. In the 1930s, the biggest little city offered visitors a license to escape with legalized gambling and lax divorce laws. Today, on the banks of the Truckee River, is an institution that showcases another vehicle of escape, the National Automobile Museum. Parked inside is a collection of over 200 cars, including a 1909 Ford Model T, a seven-person Pope Hartford from 1911, and the sporty 1913 Peugeot Bebe. But among these assembly line vehicles is a rare relic that defied conventional wisdom. It's a teardrop shape, larger in the front, tapering back in the rear. That also accommodated its three-wheel nature. As collections manager Jay Hubbard can attest, this object's daring design was once on the brink of revolutionizing the entire automotive industry. It's the car of the future. It was basically the better world of tomorrow. What is this vehicle? And what controversial tragedy caused it to vanish from American highways? 1933, Chicago, Illinois. At a time of technological innovation and change, inventor and visionary Buckminster Fuller has boldly dedicated himself to solving humanity's greatest problems. Mr. Fuller fought outside the box. He was a bit of a free thinker, very unconventional. By his 34th birthday, he's already designed an inexpensive, eco-friendly, mass-producible home for the world's growing population. But now, Fuller turns his attention to the problems of transportation, a sector he believes ripe for innovation. In 30 years, car design has barely changed. Conventional automotive thinking was basically four wheels on the ground in a very square, boxy passenger compartments. The vehicle in Fuller's blueprints, however, looks more like a flying machine than a Ford. He kind of steps away from normal automobile construction. He's looking at building his automobile to flow through the wind rather than fight against it. To make the car twice as fast and twice as fuel-efficient as typical vehicles, Fuller takes advantage of a groundbreaking lightweight material. He uses an advanced aluminum composite that envelops the automobile. Finally, on July 12, 1933, Fuller's 38th birthday, he drives his first prototype off the factory floor, like this one on display at the National Automobile Museum. He brands it the Dymaxion, an amalgam of the words dynamic, maximum, and tension. The car's odd design, including a single back wheel that steers it like a rudder, allowing it to turn on a dime, attracts attention everywhere Fuller takes it. It just naturally drew crowds because it was so unusual compared to what was on the road in America. What Fuller really hopes for is the money to mass-produce the Dymaxion in order to make it as common across the landscape as the Model T once was. And that October, Fuller receives exciting news. The investors in England, they're very interested in the automobile and they're sending a representative over. The representative is one of Britain's foremost aviators, 
Lord William Forbes Semple. Eager to make a favorable first impression, Fuller has a driver pick up Semple in the Dymaxion and chauffeur him around town. They tour Chicago in the car so he can get a full feel of what the Dymaxion is capable of doing. And when the time comes for Semple to return to England, it seems he will bring back positive news to eager investors. But en route to the airport, tragedy strikes. The driver loses control of the Demaxian, the Demaxian turns over, and he is killed. Semple is rushed to the emergency room, where his life hangs by a thread. The media immediately pounces on the tragedy, blaming it on Fuller's unorthodox three-wheel design. The headlines the next day are, Ryder is injured in this freak automobile, and the bad press just continues to heap up on top of that. Fuller fights back, insisting that the Dymaxion could not have flipped over on its own. But his protestations produce little effect, and enthusiasm for the vehicle plummets. He's lost any hope of anybody wanting to mass-produce the automobile. Months later, Lord Semple emerges from his hospital room with a bold pronouncement. Contrary to popular belief, it wasn't the Dymaxion's unique three-wheel design that caused it to overturn, but another driver. He says that there was contact between the Dymaxion and another vehicle that caused the driver to lose control of the car. Sample explains that another driver, most likely trying to get a better look at the Dymaxion, got too close and slammed into it. Fuller is shocked. Initial newspaper reports don't even mention a second vehicle. And then Fuller finds out why. The other automobile belonged to a high-ranking political official in Chicago. After the incident, the official and his car were quickly whisked away. And in the absence of anyone else on the scene, it appeared that the Dymaxion had rolled over on its own. Though the discovery of this cover-up vindicates Fuller, it's too late to salvage the car's reputation in the eyes of a skeptical public. All they can think about now is this new, futuristic, fantastic era that Buckminster Fuller is ushering in and is too dangerous to operate. And they start to lose interest quite quickly on to the next new thing. And today, this Dymaxion on display at the National Automobile Museum serves as a testament to how Fuller's one-time car of the future remains parked in the past. From a Martian monkey to a makeup mastermind, a plot against the president to a long-lost play. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.